From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Tax Day edition, a barrage of missiles hit Lviv, Ukraine, earlier today, killing at least seven people and injuring more. The attack in western Ukraine reflects Russia's growing desperation. But over the weekend, Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shamal said that while they welcomed a diplomatic solution... We will not uh, surrender, we will not leave our country, our families, our land, so we will fight absolutely till the end, till the win in this war. We'll get an update from Ukraine with freelance war correspondent Chuck Holton in just a moment. And could this be why President Biden has reached a historic low in his approval rating with just one third of Americans approving of the job he is doing? It's the wasteful, irresponsible spending that has led to higher prices and inflation. It's the irresponsible actions of this president along the border that has led to an immigration and a fentanyl crisis. It's the irresponsible policies of this administration that has led to dangerous streets, ineffective schools, and that has got to stop. That was Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy yesterday on Fox News. Congress is out this week, but we'll talk with Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who is back in her home state of Missouri a little later. A university in Ohio may not know biology, but they're certainly getting a lesson in math. Shawnee State University has settled with Professor Nick Merriweather over the university's efforts to force him to use biologically incorrect pronouns. Just how much will it cost the university? And could this send a message to other institutions in the pronoun war? We'll talk with one of Meriwether's attorneys, ADF Logan Spina, later on Washington Watch. Also, we want Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state in the country. Uh, We want to outlaw abortion in the state of Oklahoma. That was Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt last week when he signed a pro-life measure into law. The new law, which makes most abortions illegal in the state, puts Oklahoma at the forefront of the battle for life. Governor Kevin Stitt joins us later. And finally, there is a reason President Biden's approval ratings are in the septic tank. And it's not just because his policies stink. The policies of the administration are so far outside the mainstream that even Democrats disapprove. So how was Joe Biden able to run as a moderate, given that he is to the left of any previous president? He actually had a moderate record, but like the Democratic Party, he has moved to the hard left. It wasn't long ago that Joe Biden supported even stronger pro-life and pro-family policies than the one he recently attacked in Florida. We'll talk with Rachel Bovard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partner Institute. The website, TonyPerkins.com, it's all archived right there. If you miss anything, you can find it later. Our verse for today, coming from our Stand on the Word Bible reading plan, is Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. The courage to face the opposition, that is often overwhelming, comes first from the courage to obey God when others have chosen not to. I invite you to join us in our two-year Bible reading plan. Go to frc.org slash Bible. You can also join me each morning, Monday through Friday at 844 a.m. Eastern, for a daily devotional based upon 
the Bible reading plan. You can find it either at TonyPerkins.com or on my Facebook page. As I mentioned earlier this morning, Russia's military launched several missiles into the city of Lviv in western Ukraine, which until today was largely unscathed by the Russian attacks. The missile attack resulted in the deaths of at least seven and injuries to about a dozen, including a child. With me now to give us an on-the-ground update is freelance war correspondent Chuck Holton, who is in Ukraine. Chuck, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm good, Chuck. I'm glad to see that you're safe, but uh, the the fighting seems to be intensifying. Give us, give us the latest of what's happening there in Ukraine. That's right. I'm in the southern city of Mykolaiv, and that's only about 10 miles from the front lines between Mykolaiv and Kherson. Uh, now, the Ukrainians and the Russians have been trading artillery all day long and all night last night. As a matter of fact, I can even hear it while I'm standing here, just like rolling thunder off in the distance. Uh, So uh, the Russians are obviously stepping up their attacks. They're trying to uh, increase this new offensive, uh, especially down in the south and in the east. But as you said, there was also the attack in Lviv today, which probably was aimed at the train station there because there are uh, supplies, weapons, and other material coming in from the west into Lviv on that train. Now, uh, that's also where a lot of refugees are going out to the west from from Ukraine. So it's obviously a uh, uh, there are a lot of civilians there, and the civilians were the ones who were killed in that uh, that attack today. Now there have been lots of attacks in Mykolaiv here where I am as the Russians try to soften up this uh, city uh, for a new attack. We're wondering if they're planning to in, try to encircle Mykolaiv by coming in from the sea. There have been several Russian ships spotted headed this way and a lot of fighting down in the south right on the coast. So uh, we're waiting over the next few days to see what comes of that. Uh, Chuck, last week with the Russians losing uh, one of their flagships uh, to uh, the Ukrainians, is this an effort to, with these missile attacks to try to uh, to show strength? Uh, is this a sign of desperation on behalf of Russia? Well, I think everything that Putin has done from the beginning of this war has been acting out of his weakness. And this this is no no different. Uh, obviously, stepping up the brutality of attacks, uh, this new general that they've put in charge of the uh, increased offensive here in the south, uh, who had a, a reputation for brutality in Syria. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. They're losing pretty much whenever they try to fight the Ukrainian military. Uh, and so with the Ukrainian military being much better trained, much better led, and much better disciplined than the Russian troops. Uh, also, they've got equipment the Russian troops don't have, like uh, radios, things like that. Uh, So uh, with the assistance of the West and a lot of signals intelligence being passed along to the Ukrainians, uh, the Ukrainians might actually have the upper hand in this. And um, they are saying that they plan to push the Russians out of Kherson, the only major city that has been completely taken so far across Ukraine. So uh, I think the next couple of weeks are going to be pivotal in this campaign. And if the Ukrainians can muster enough troops uh, to to push the, the, the Russians back once again, 
that will be a almost a death blow to the the morale of the Russians. They're already talking about on on Russian state media that maybe they ought to let Ukraine get rid of their own Nazis. Uh, for uh, that, that probably would have been a good idea from the start. Uh, but uh, we will see, and it's obvious the Russians are desperately trying to get some sort of victory to tout to their people uh, back in Russia. Final question for you, uh, Chuck. You heard the prime minister of Ukraine saying that, uh, no surrender, we will fight this until we win. Do you see that same resolve among the Ukrainian people as you're there on the ground? I absolutely do. The Ukrainian forces that I talk to are grim in their determination, but absolutely optimistic that they will push Russia out, they will be victorious, and they won't stop until they are. They realize that the, uh, the other option is Bucha. The other option is Mariupol. Uh, that's that's what happens when the Russians take over, and so they they know that uh, death and torture and destruction is the only end of not winning this war, and so that's pretty good motivation for these troops, and they are ready to fight to the finish. Chuck Holton, thanks so much again for joining us. We uh, look forward to your updates uh, from Ukraine, and we pray for your safety. Thank you. And folks, I encourage you to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and, and pray that even now we can uh, reach a, uh, a peaceful resolve that uh, Russia will realize that uh, this is a no-win situation for them and pray for the safety of uh, those there. All right, joining us now to talk more about this and uh, other developments when we look at the economy is Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. She represents the 4th Congressional District of Missouri, and she is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Vicki, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Tony. It's good to be here. I want to get your thoughts on uh, the, the update we just received from uh, Chuck Holton. But first, I, I happened to see an article uh, about you in uh, the local paper there in Missouri over the weekend. Uh, kind of looked like they were trying to attack your faith as a Christian in public office. But to me, it looked like it may have backfired. Well, you know, it is true. I hope that they did a profile piece and talk about my work on the Armed Services Committee and as an Agriculture Committee and other things that I have done. Uh, but they were insisted that the article had to focus on my faith, and he just kept diving in further and further. And I'm certainly happy to talk about my faith and uh, the role that God has played in my life and how I think it is so important for our country. Uh, so the article tried to uh, pigeonhole me, but I think it was positive, and hopefully God will use it for his glory. Well, I can attest to the role your faith has played as I've worked alongside you since you arrived in Congress. And I'll tell you what, I don't think we can find a better champion for faith, family, and freedom than uh, what you've done, not only for the citizens of Missouri, but uh, for families all across this country. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, Kevin McCarthy on Fox News saying, had the United States, had the Biden administration provided the resources earlier and taken a stand in a firmer fashion earlier, we may have avoided this uh, this war that uh, that Putin may not have invaded Ukraine. Do you believe that? Well, it's something, unfortunately, we will never know, but I certainly think peace through strength is the way to go, and to being a strong deterrent is the best remedy to preventing aggression, and sadly, we did not get this equipment to them soon enough. 
Uh, many of us were calling for our our uh, for us to step up and to send this last fall, and uh, it is just now in the last few weeks starting to arrive in the numbers that we really need uh, for the Ukrainians. So I'm I wish it could have gotten there sooner, uh, but I am pleased that we are continuing to provide them with things. Last week, the president did announce another eight hundred billion dollars, which is going to include armored personnel carriers, uh, helicopters, more javelins, uh, over uh, fifty thousand just helmets and body armor, uh, some of the things that they could have used a lot sooner. Uh, now we've just got to make sure that it actually arrives in, uh, to where the soldiers are, where it's needed, and it can get there to them. And I'm just so uh, proud of those Ukrainians and their spirit and their how they are standing strong in the face of unbelievable aggression and raw evil uh, that is invading their land. And we have to stand with them in prayer as well as give them the military capabilities they need and the humanitarian supplies. Are we moving in the right direction as a country in terms of the Biden administration and the support we're giving? I know we're up against a break, but very quickly, are we moving in the right direction? I think so. We're we're upping the number of equipment and the types, including drones and these uh, armored personnel carriers, uh, the missile defense systems that are needed. And we've just got to continue that as aggressively as possible. All right. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzer, always great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. You bet. Thank you, Tony. All right. And folks, don't go away. Coming back on the other side of the break with more Washington Watch. A university in Ohio may not know biology, but they're going to get a lesson in math. That's coming up next. Don't go away. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans... It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this, and that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Listen, folks, did you hear that? Well, listen to Proverbs 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud. Mm. There are two voices begging to be followed, the voice of foolishness and the voice of wisdom. So how can you know which one is the right voice? In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 33, wisdom says, whoever listens to me will dwell in safety. Instill in your children that God's Word is the only source of wisdom. As a parent, if you do this, your children will be able to distinguish between the voices of foolishness and the voice of wisdom. Remember, there are really only two voices, wisdom and foolishness. Listen carefully. 
Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. What makes America a Christian nation? This is Jim Garlow. In 1892, Associate Supreme Court Justice David Brewer wrote a unanimous court opinion declaring that, quote, this is a Christian nation, end of quote. Justice Brewer served on the high court for 20 years and became known for exhorting Christians to perform their moral, religious, and citizenship duties to the nation. He wrote, I insist that Christianity has been so wrought into the history of this republic, so identified with its growth and prosperity, has been and is so dear to the hearts of the great body of our citizens that it ought not to be spoken of contemptuously or treated with ridicule. According to Justice Brewer, America is, of all the nations in the world, most justly called a Christian nation because Christianity has so largely shaped and molded it. We must return to those Christian principles once again in America. There's more at wellversedworld.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Check it out. Lots of resources there for you and contact information for our guest. All right, as we've seen repeatedly these past few years, one wrong pronoun and your career could be at risk. Frankly, it's mind-boggling that this is where the woke crowd has led us as a nation. And we're already, we already know where we're headed next if Democrats continue their majority in Congress. Punishments for anyone and everyone who refuses to play along with this moral make-believe confusion confusion. Um, This could extend to everything from the Equality Act passing Congress to something as simple as what teachers and professors are legally mandated to address students by. But perhaps there is a glimmer of hope in the case of uh, Shawnee State University philosophy professor, Dr. Nicholas Merriweather. Uh, His attorney, Logan Spina, joins us now with some good news. Logan, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me. So it, it appears that uh, the university there, Shawnee University, may not be very good with biology, but they're getting a math lesson. In this instance, what, what the lesson they're receiving is, is how to comply with the United States Constitution. A philosophy professor, Dr. Nicholas Merriweather, was punished for his refusal to use terms to refer to a student that are inconsistent with that student's sex and with the message that Dr. Merriweather wants to communicate. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals found that that violates his First Amendment rights. And so they have settled this case uh, with $400,000, but they don't seem to be very repentant uh, about it. The the, the articles I've read seems to be that they're, they're still just as militant about this as they had been previously. Either way, they're going to be compelled to respect the rights of First Amendment professors. And that's what's important about Dr. Merriweather's stand. The trend that we're seeing of trying to require teachers and professors to affirm an ideology about gender or sexual identity is growing across the country. But people like Dr. Merriweather are standing up and they're finding, with good help, that the First Amendment protects their rights. So, Logan, let's back up for just a moment to share with our viewers and our listeners how this whole case came about. Sure. 
Way back in 2018, Dr. Merriweather, who, as I mentioned, teaches philosophy, was requested by a student to use terms to refer to that student with feminine titles and pronouns, and the student is a male student. As a philosophy professor, Dr. Merriweather understands the power of words, and he was unwilling to use those terms to communicate a message that someone's gender or sexual identity is based solely on their subjective identity and not their sex. But the university wanted to compel Dr. Merriweather to express a contrary view. And so they punished him for that, and Dr. Merriweather brought a lawsuit, which made it up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled in his favor and said that the university could not condition his ability to hold a job as a professor on his willingness to affirm the state's orthodoxy. So they, they've had to, uh, to settle, in this case, to uh, pay uh, him damages and legal fees. Does this set a precedent for for other cases? Because this isn't the first, and I know ADF is actually representing other teachers, both at the collegiate level and uh, in uh, high school and secondary uh, education level. Uh, does this set a precedent? It does. The Sixth Circuit's opinion sets a precedent that's binding on all the courts in within the physical jurisdiction of that court. But the court also sets a lot of guideposts for courts across the country on how to address this issue. That's because it precisely lays out a really compelling analysis on really kind of every legal front that deals with the issue of compelled pronouns in school. So it found that the important interest of the university in viewpoint diversity and allowing professors to engage in scholarship or teaching is protected by a rule that protects professors. It also found that the actions of Shawnee State would have violated his free exercise rights as well. So the Merriweather case is an excellent precedent for courts across the country and universities who simply want to avoid big damages and fee awards like this case. If they just want to read the opinion and follow the First Amendment that way, we think that would be an excellent way to go. You know, this is this is good news, um, but it's not uh, we, we shouldn't necessarily be surprised, although encouraged by it. When you have individuals that are standing up to defend First Amendment and uh, whether it's speech or religious uh, freedoms, when you have groups like Alliance Defending Freedom that are willing to take them to court, you know, nine times out of 10, they do win, but you just have to have men and women who are willing to stand up for those freedoms that we have, because if we don't stand up, we will lose them. Not because we'll lose them in the courts, but because we won't defend them to, you know, the institutions that the left has taken over, like higher education. That's a critical point. Forces in the culture are trying to exact a high price for people who want to stand up for the basic idea that there are such things as sexes or that there are such things as males or females. People like Dr. Merriweather or Tanner Cross and Monica Gill in Virginia or Peter Vlaming in Virginia, these people are examples, but they show that we need more. We need more people who are willing to stand up and say that enough is enough on this issue. And they're finding that the First Amendment does protect that speech. Yeah. And, and they also know when they stand up, Logan, they don't stand alone uh, because they, there are organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, Liberty Council, First Liberty, uh, and others that are willing to defend these fundamental rights, because if we don't, we will absolutely lose them. So, look, congratulations uh, to Alliance Defending Freedom for uh, winning yet another case in defense of this vital 
freedom of ours, freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Thanks very much, Tony. All right, uh, Logan Spina. And again, if we don't stand up, when these are these freedoms are under attack, we will absolutely lose them. Now, I, I've said this many times. I'm not for people who are who are picking a fight, going out to look for a fight. I don't think we should do that as believers. We shouldn't walk around with a Jesus chip on our shoulder, daring someone to knock it off. But we should never back away from defending what we know to be right. We should not play along with this charade, with this game that the left is playing, because it's not just a game. This is about destroying human lives, and children in particular. We need to stand for truth. And folks, I'm telling you, when you stand up, you will not stand alone. Courage breeds courage. Speaking of courage, coming up next, we're going to be joined by the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt. Talks about their pro-life law that he signed into law last week. Don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch right after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Hey, our tour of Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon and the separate tour of Colonial Williamsburg, Jamestown and Yorktown for September. We still have a few seats available for June. We have sold out. That's the situation with the spiritual heritage tours. We do have seats left for September. Hey, Stephen and Beth McDowell of the Providence Foundation are going to serve as co-hosts along with me, Tim Wildman, and my wife, Allison, for these tours. So we get to interact and have a lot of fun and fellowship with our folks who have joined us from around the country for these very special tours. So if you want the information, the itinerary, the cost, the dates, everything about the tours, go to spiritualheritagetours.com, spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The recent revelation of late-term babies aborted at a Washington, D.C. abortion center exposed the likelihood that federal laws were broken in the process of killing the children. It also revealed another barbaric reality. Curtis Bay Energy is a company that picks up the remains of aborted babies and incinerates them. A closer look revealed they burned this so-called medical waste to generate electricity for the community. Curtis Bay's website advertises their Waste to Energy program, which means if you live in the Baltimore, Maryland area, aborted babies have been burned to keep your lights on and your house warm. The words Curtis Bay Energy were printed on the box that contained 115 aborted babies, five of them very late-term abortions at the D.C. abortion mill. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. As I mentioned, uh, on the road today, headed to a retreat with my senior team as we'll be planning this week. I encourage you to uh, keep us in mind. Pray for us as the Lord gives us direction for this coming Fiscal year. Well, last Thursday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law HB 5, the Reducing Fetal and Infant Mortality Act, which will protect the lives of Florida's most vulnerable by prohibiting abortions after 15 weeks of gestation. Now, 
That came just two days after Oklahoma's governor signed into law his state's pro-life legislation, SB 612, which White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called, quote, one of the most extreme state laws signed into law to date, end quote. In her written statements, Hockey said, quote, the actions today in Oklahoma are a part of a disturbing national trend attacking women's rights, end quote. She went on to urge Congress to codify Roe v. Wade into law. Well, here to talk about this disturbing national trend is Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt. Governor, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to, uh, to be here with you talking to all your listeners. Well, look, I'm going to just start right where uh, Saki uh, left off there, that this is a disturbing national trend. I think maybe they're threatened by it because more states stand on the side of life than stand with the Obama administration. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, I know I'm doing something right when this administration criticizes the laws that we're passing. But, you know, the deal is I I, I represent all four million Oklahomans. And, and let me be very clear. Uh we don't believe in abortions. We don't want abortions in our state. Uh, we believe that's our right as, as a state and a people to determine uh, that we're going to stand with life. So I don't know how much clearer we can be. Other states can do things differently. But in the state of Oklahoma, uh, we want to protect life. And, and, I, and I represent all 4 million Oklahomans. The majority of the people stand with me. And, uh, and we're going to continue to push back against um, the federal government saying that that's okay. I would think, Governor, uh, that Americans should be more concerned about the left's effort to codify Roe v. Wade into law than what states are doing, as you are, to represent the citizens of your state. Yeah, you know, it's it's really disappointing for me. I mean, you look at this administration, I mean, everything that they do is just... uh, uh, you know, not what we believe in Oklahoma. You can look at their energy policy. You can look at the border. Uh, and obviously we're talking about, uh, you know, life here. Uh, it, it, it's just so barbaric to us in Oklahoma. Colorado just passed a bill that's just, it's just horrendous. They can abort a baby up to birth. Um, we don't believe that in Oklahoma. And, and so we're going to stand with life. We're going to protect life. We've got more wraparound services, more church groups, uh, helping with crisis pregnancies. We've got adoption agencies. Uh, I have talked to people that were uh, thanking me so much because they were personally adopted. Presidents, CEOs of companies were left at a, at a fire station. One, one guy was reminding me that he was a personally left at a fire station and just thanked me for standing for life because we believe that God has a plan and a purpose for every single person. And there are no mistakes. Every single person has value. And that's what we believe in Oklahoma. And and just this administration uh, trying to destroy that is just preposterous to us. Well, uh, Governor, I I, I agree. And a moment ago, I said the Obama administration, because they're both the same. Both of them are pro-abortion, although I have to say the Biden administration is even more extreme than the Obama. But what is behind what's happening right now across the country? We're seeing more and more states embrace the sanctity of life. I mean, to me, this is quite encouraging to see leaders like yourself, Governor DeSantis. We've had the uh, governors of several other states that have stepped forward, Mississippi. I mean, you can, the list goes on of states who are embracing and not just saying it in terms of a political statement, but actually putting action to it. What's behind this? 
Well, I think people are just just fed up with a one-size-fits-all approach. For me personally, standing for uh, godly values, standing for what's right, I'm more and more emboldened to represent my people and the people of Oklahoma. And, you know, our, our, our founders had it right when they said what was not specifically given to the federal government belongs to the states or the people. And I said it before. I mean, every state can do things a little bit differently. Uh, I represent all 4 million Oklahomans, and we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly uh, support life. And and we don't want abortion in our state. I don't know how much clearer we can be. Uh, We're thankful that the Supreme Court is going to take up, and they're hearing the Mississippi case. Uh, But you're right, there's legislation all over the country. Because I think uh, with, with, with the science now, we know that life begins at conception. We know that those heartbeats are detected uh, you know, early, early on, that that is a, a human being that can feel pain. Uh, and so we want to protect that. And we just think it's barbaric to do anything differently. The United States has some of the most egregious abortion laws in any of the civilized countries. And, uh, and I think people are waking up to uh, how unbelievable and how out on the fringes, uh, you know, the U.S. has been on this issue. Well, and they need to be encouraged as well that we have elected leaders that are willing to take on the media and the left in standing up for the sanctity of human life. Governor Kevin Stitt, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for your leadership. Thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate it. All right. And folks, I encourage you to uh, to follow up with the governor. I know we've got a lot of viewers and listeners in Oklahoma. Look, I know we're oftentimes we can uh, we can weigh in when we don't like something, but we need to encourage these men and women who are standing up for truth. And it is encouraging because it's happening all across the country country. All right, folks, don't go away. When we come back, President Biden seems to be changing a little bit. I think it's reflective of the Democratic Party going hard left. We talk about it next with Rachel Brovard. Don't go away. More Washington Watch to come right after this. It is so important for God's children to spend time with Him in His Word. But sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start, or for some it might be hard to know how to apply Scripture to their everyday life. We know that the Word of God is rich, for it is written that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. God's Word is powerful, but we shouldn't be intimidated at the thought of reading it. We can explore the Word with other believers so that we may better understand it and be transformed by it together. That is why Family Research Council offers their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can understand the nature of God, how His Word speaks into various issues, and grow closer to Him. Sign up to get the daily Bible passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. So they asked me to enter my email address, and the next thing I know, I start getting emails from companies I never even knew existed. What's up with that? Here at the American Family Association, you have our word that we won't give away, sell, or lease your email address to any other organization or company. We're thankful when you take the time to subscribe to AFA Action Alerts, One Million Moms, Engage Magazine, or any of our other online newsletters. Bishop E.W. Jackson is on a mission. Some people are just embarrassed to be Americans. That's a big problem. I mean, I've heard people say that. 
They're embarrassed to be Americans. I'm not embarrassed to be American. I love my country. I'm I'm thankful to God that I'm an American. I'm thankful to God to live in this land of freedom and opportunity and hope. And I'm fighting to make sure that that never changes. The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson every weekday at noon central on AFR or catch the podcast at AFR.net. Do you keep track of the offenses people inflict upon you? Jesus said that we're to forgive 70 times 7, 490 times. Does that mean we're to keep track of the offenses people inflict upon us and on the 491st time we can seek revenge? No one may hurt you 490 times, but the reality is we may think about it 490 times. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. It's choosing to forgive the person that hurt you every time you think about it. People say to forgive and forget. The reality is it's not possible to forget some of the horrific things that have happened to us. In fact, we don't really have the capacity to choose to forget. We can, however, live as if it's forgotten. Forgiveness is a choice, a choice that must be made time and time again, maybe even 490 times a day. As you cry out to God today, would you choose to thank Him for the people that have been the tools of hurt in your life? I'm Steve Canfield, Revivalist at Life Action Ministries for OneCry.com. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us on this uh, Monday, which happens to be tax day. As I mentioned, I'm uh, on the road this week, actually uh, heading out to do a retreat with my senior team as we plan for the upcoming uh, year, the fiscal year. So uh, I encourage you. If you would, pray for us, that the Lord would give us directions that we need. All right, President Biden and his administration have spoken out strongly against Florida's parental rights in education law that, among other things, prohibits instruction about sexuality and transgenderism to children in kindergarten through third grade. Now, you would think that this administration, given uh, inflation at record highs, the war in Ukraine and the instability literally around the globe, that they would have more important things to do than focus on indoctrinating children in kindergarten through third grade. But no, this is a priority for this administration. In fact, they have called Florida's law hateful, horrific, discriminatory, and a form of bullying, among other things. But, but... Back in the 1990s, then-Senator Joe Biden voted for an amendment that was much closer being the, quote, don't say gay bill that critics of the Florida's new law claim it to be. And when asked about this uh, last month, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki gave this non-answer answer. In terms of his views and comments from 25 years ago, I think the most important question now is why are Florida leaders deciding they need to discriminate against kids who are members of the LGBTQI community? So what does the White House want us to forget about? Joining me now to discuss this and what it tells us not only about Joe Biden, but about how far Democrats have shifted on issues like this is Rachel Bovard, senior columnist at The Federalist and the Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partner in- Partnership Institute. She has served in various roles in both the House and the Senate on Capitol Hill. Rachel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've written a piece about this, uh, I guess it was earlier this month or late last month, in The Federalist. Uh, 
Tell us about then Senator Joe Biden's don't say gay moment and compare that to where he's at today. It really is a remarkable transformation. So the piece that I wrote touches on a debate in the Senate that took place in 1994 surrounding the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which people will may recall is the bill that still to this day funds a lot of the federal government's education activities. And as part of that debate, an amendment was offered by Senator Bob Smith, a Republican from New Hampshire at the time, which was far more explicit about what you could and couldn't say uh, about homosexuality in the classroom. And I'm quoting here, the amendment said it would prohibit schools from receiving any funds for, quote, encouraging or supporting homosexuality as a positive lifestyle alternative end quote. So that is literally a don't say gay bill uh, or an amendment that was offered here. And what's really remarkable too, and I tried to parse this a little bit in the piece, is that the debate that was held on the Senate floor, you know, roughly 30 years ago is so reflective of the debate we're having today. Bob Smith brought with him materials that were being passed out in schools, materials that were in school libraries. And he said, I can't quote from these because they're too obscene. Uh, you know, bring senators to come look at them, but this is what's being instructed in your child's classroom. Very similar to the debate we're having today. However, the difference was that then Democrats agreed uh, with the premise of the amendment. And you saw Senator Joe Biden go down and cast a vote in favor of this Smith-Helms amendment, which said, yeah, no instruction can take place here. Uh, discussing homosexuality is a positive lifestyle alternative. For the Joe Biden of... 1994, that was completely fine. Contrast that to today, where a much, much uh, broader sort of uh, gentler law from the state of Florida, which just says, hey, don't discuss gender identity with children in kindergarten through third grade uh, and also inform their parents, uh, you know, if they're discussing gender transition. That is hateful when 30 years ago, a much, much more punitive form of that amendment was completely fine. But this is not the only area, Rachel, that we see this. Um, I, I, I don't know if I want to say hypocrisy. I'll be kind. Contrast. I mean, how many times did Joe Biden vote for the Hyde Amendment and not forcing Americans to fund abortion? Now his administration wants to codify this into law, Roe v. Wade, and force all Americans to pay for it. I use the word transformation. You know, we can say hypocrisy, although I think for, you know, career politicians like Joe Biden, they're they're not shamed by the charge of hypocrisy. But it, Joe Biden has really undergone a transformation when it comes to cultural issues. This is someone who, as you point out, for his entire career supported the, you know, federal funding prohibition on abortion and in the span of, you know, 6 months on the campaign trail reversed himself. Uh, on a key question, has pushed against religious liberty, has pushed against, you know, as we've seen in favor of this transgender ideology sweeping the country. So this is someone who you could have considered at some point moderate or even conservative on a lot of these social and cultural concerns who has swung completely to the left, been captured by this progressive wing of the Democratic Party on these cultural questions, and now actively seeks to overturn a lot of what I think many Americans thought was consensus around these issues. Yeah, I think it's your piece is very enlightening. And folks, uh, there's a link at the website, TonyPerkins.com. Um, 
I mean, we knew a lot of this stuff that Biden was more moderate. He ran as a moderate. He was billed as the moderate, but he's done anything but govern as a moderate. I mean, he's been. But but even when he was vice president, he was really to the left of uh, of Barack Obama. In many ways, he he forced the Obama administration's hand on same sex marriage. He came out before President Obama did on on pushing that. But there is this underlying um, uh, stream, if you will, that I think is is really it's the the Democratic Party that has shifted uh, so mm-hmm. prominently on these issues. Has the I mean, well, what is behind that? Has has the left taken over the Democratic Party and these politicians just wanting to hold on to their careers or riding the party? You know, it's an interesting question, and I think it is. It has very much to do with this, with the takeover element that you just referenced. Because I think on a lot of these, you know, very, you know, divisive cultural issues, there is sort of a consensus in America that even most moderate Democrats fall into. Right? We may not agree on the granularity of, you know, specific abortion policy, but most parents across the country want a say in their child's education. That doesn't seem to be a controversial view, except here in Washington, where it seems like this very, very loud minority within the Democratic Party. So I'm talking about not that big of a faction, but a very loud and a very aggressive faction has taken over the Democratic Party in Washington and is forcing these like transformative social views on a party where I would wager not a lot of their base actually supports. And I think this is going to be an interesting test question for the midterm elections. You know, how many people respond to the Democrats' culture war from their own base? And I suspect that a lot of parents in the Democratic Party are scratching their heads saying, you know, we can debate some of these, you know, you know, hot topics, but the fact that you want to bar me from knowing on knowing what's going on in my child's school, that's probably a bridge too far for most. So I do think it is this like nexus of of a minority within the party that is just incredibly loud. And they have cowed a lot of the Democratic politicians into submission. Now, now Rachel, um, I've, I've been around a tad bit longer than than, than you have. I've been <laughs> here about, tw- about 20 years. And so I, I've watched a, a clear line of separation between the two parties. I recall sitting down, you know, and having dinner with blue dog Democrats and talking about life issues, talking even about Second Amendment issues. They they no longer exist. They've actually been exterminated by their own party. But the Republicans as well have actually become more conservative. We have more conservatives. And I know conservatives would say, well, they're not conservative enough. But we actually have seen uh, in the last, really, 2018, after 2018, we no longer have any openly pro-abortion, pro-choice Republicans. We have a caucus in a conference in the Republicans that are all pro-life, at least they state that. Um, Of course, we don't have any pro-life Democrats anymore. So the lines have clearly been separated. I don't know that there's any middle ground in politics anymore. I think it's elections have consequences. And as we see from the Biden administration, they're pushing their radical agenda once they gain power. And so if people aren't involved electing individuals who represent their values, they're going to be ruled by a set of values that run counter to what they believe in. I think that is the reality that we're living in. And it's interesting to watch the left evolve on this question because they were very much the party, you know, who was like, well, you know, live and let live. You know, at some point, I guess they were like that. And now they are dramatically different. They are imposing 
you know, progressive values on everyone. It's you agree with them or you, you know, are a racist and a sexist and a bigot, whatever else they want to throw at you. So the, the battle lines have been drawn. And I think, you know, for some, that's been some benefit to the right as well, as you point out. I think one of the things that the pro-life movement in Washington has done very well is they've made very clear the realities of abortion. Um, and they've, you know, made it very difficult for people to say, oh, there's a compromise here. Well, no, when you're talking about the life of a child, there is no compromise. And so right. I do think the battle lines are more clearly uh, driven here. But it's it's interesting, as you as you mentioned, the fact that there used to be pro-life Democrats. And I think Bart Stupak was perhaps the last. <laughs> and he was driven out by his own party. So Right. He you know. was targeted in his primary by, <laughs> by his Democrats. own party. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, Rachel, we don't have to go far. And this is what I, I, I tell people all the time. Look, we shouldn't be surprised by this, quite frankly, because if you look at the at the party platforms, and I know a lot of people think that's just technical garbage that's just out there that nobody pays attention to. But when you look at the party platforms, these parties follow those platforms 75 to 80 percent of the time. And the Democrats have made very clear in their party platform where they stand on this issue. They are for forcing taxpayers to fund abortion, therefore redefining human sexuality, therefore trampling upon religious freedom in the name of this sexual libertarianism. Uh, so, I mean, it is yeah. uh, it, it's very clear where they want to take America. Even in my lifetime, if you think back to the Clinton administration, you know, Bill Clinton saying, oh, abortion should be safe, legal and rare. Right. Rare was a big component of that. That is gone now. Uh, that moderation is gone. They have gone completely radical on this issue to the extent that you have that really awful shout your abortion movement on the left. Um, you know, when you had the Dobbs case being argued in front of the Supreme Court, you had abortion activists from the left taking abortion pills in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, there is yeah. nothing moderate about this party anymore. It is not safe, legal, and rare. It is like they want to force abortion on everyone. And it's true. I mean, that is just a remarkable shift in, in a matter of, you know, 20 years or so, just two decades. And that's what we're dealing with now from the left. And so, I mean, I, I think people need to realize, I mean, our viewers, our listeners need to realize that, you know, there's no longer that broad median you know, like you're driving down the interstate, you got a median. If you kind of slip off a little bit, you're in the median, you're okay. There's uh, there's uh, it's kind of that middle ground, safety ground. I mean, this is a, a, a four lane highway going opposite directions, and there's nothing separating. If we careen off just a little bit, it is a head on collision. And so I think it, it is. This is a a call to to Christians, to conservatives, that we have to be informed, we have to be involved, that every election, I think, going forward is the most important election that we've ever had, because it only takes one election to take, uh, quoting Secretary Becerra in a recent uh, setting on Capitol Hill, to take us down that rat hole that this administration right. wants to take us down. Yeah, there is no, you know, well, I might agree with this party on some things and not on others. It is if you care about cultural issues, if you care about values issues, if you care about, you know, basic human dignity and life, it is a binary choice for you at this point. There, you know, there are you can if there's Democrats who literally want to impose abortion politics on your five year old, uh, not to mention gender ideology, not to mention the host of other things. They, they're still persecuting nuns. 
uh, forcing nuns right. to buy birth control, right? This is not a party of moderation on any question. This is not even a party of cultural consensus anymore. And so I think it really is a binary choice on questions like this. You're, you're voting Republican or you're voting Democrat. There's no in-between. There's no moderation. And Joe, Bo- and Joe Biden has been a proxy for that question. His career, I think, yeah. really reflects uh, how the Democratic Party has evolved on this. Well, I would I would broaden that even a little bit more. If you want an economy that is thriving and you don't want to pay four dollars <laughs> right. and 50 cents a gallon for gasoline, it's a binary choice, because when, when you're embracing this green agenda and you're worshiping creation more than the creator, you're going to end up with policies like this that hit each and every one of us. Rachel Bovard, great to talk with you. Great piece. Uh, very insightful. I love these kind of things that actually go back, connect all the dots. It's not just uh, hyperbole. It is, it's fact. And it shows how this president and this Democratic Party has uh, gone so far and hard to the left. Always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. And folks, I do encourage you to, to, to read this. It's a, it's a thoughtful piece and it, and it lays it out. And I think it is uh, very instructive. And it is. It is very clear how the, the parties, there is a clear contrast between the parties in America today. Elections have consequences. You need to be informed and you need to be involved. And some of you need to be running for office, school board, city council, state legislature, and even Congress. You need to pray. You need to take your your stand. And as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.